episode 191 of the Bevan James Isles Show, an interview with Bree Williams. Radio team, welcome along to episode 191 of the Bevan James I'll Show, your fortnightly podcast on the behaviours that create a lifetime of love of exercise so you can get all the benefits that come alongside it. Uh, welcome to the show team. Today I have an interview with a behaviour specialist called Bree Williams. Bree is somebody who's worked with businesses, worked with individuals to ultimately get higher level performance out of themselves in the things that they do in their life. She's had a career that's been going over 15 years, uh, so... Yeah, I think you're going to get a lot of value in her in what the insight that she has to share with you. So uh, it's going to be a pretty cool interview. I'm actually looking really forward to this because Bree's someone who has the newsletter that she sends out. And my good friend, Sean, uh, he, he he often just send me through articles to read because him and I like the same kind of content. And it's amazing the amount of times she sent me, he sent me her articles. So I thought to myself, I want to get her on because she what she writes about is really good stuff. So you can check that out. I'll send you, I'll put a link to her website. It's briewilliams.com in the show notes. But more importantly, we're going to be listening to her really soon. Not going to spend too much time talking before the interview. So let's just get into the patrons. Now, if you enjoy the show and you want to support me doing this show, the best way you can do that is, well, there's two ways. Tell people about the show and then also become a patron. And becoming a patron is just a way you can financially support me and getting the show out there. Go to bevanjamesisles.com, click on podcast, and you'll see on that page there it has support me. Uh, then go through the process. And what happens is each time I release a show, you just put a bit of your hard-earned money my way. And it helps me support what I'm doing. and helps me get good, great content out there for you. So I just want to say when you become a patron, you also get a cool patron nickname. And these are a few of the people who have become patrons. We've got Scott ACDC Young, David the Unstoppable Storm Hale. We've got the Mystery Pal. We've got Karina Lifting Higher. Uh, Hirschman, we've got Rosa, a deeper level Scott, and we've got Scott Leadbelly McMillan. These are all people who are patrons of the show. If you are a patron of the show, I really appreciate your support. You know who you are, you absolute legends. Anyway, let's get into the interview. Here is Bree Williams right now. Right, Tim, I'm very happy to have a lovely lady by the name of Bree Williams on the show. Welcome to the show, Bree. It's good to be with you, Bevan. So maybe maybe just start telling me a bit about your history. I read on your website that Dan Ariely's Predict Be Rational kind of was a life changer for you. So maybe just tell us about your history before you got into this field and kind of your journey from that point forward. Yeah, sure. And there's probably another life-changing moment that we can talk about as well. But um, certainly I read the book Predictably Irrational. And for those who don't know, it's really about behavioral economics, how Mm -hmm. behavioral science can be applied to, I guess, the decisions that we make. And I was in the corporate sector at the time. So I'd worked in the corporate sector for, at that stage, about 15 years. And I was working in product management. But I had studied um, way back back when um, a double degree of accounting and psychology and I was always curious about how on earth would I fuse those two seemingly disparate professions and yet I did because I read um, (laughs) predictably irrational I thought that's exactly sort of the link between economics and finance and the psychology of how people make decisions and so I came across this field I thought that science was 
excellent, but business people weren't applying it either because they weren't aware of the science or they weren't sure how to. So I started to blog about it. I wrote my first book to prove to myself that it could be used um, for common business issues. And from there, it just I, I went out on my own. So I've now had my consultancy people patterns for 10 years. What's that like? You know, because there's a lot of people out there, and, and I speak to a lot of people, and it's, you're a very interesting example of someone who's kind of had a very, probably a very successful and safe career. And then, you know, you think, I found this new passion, I want to go into something that I'm kind of, you know, but it, it is dump, jumping in the deep end. What was that like, and how did that transition work for you? I was so naive, Bevan. <laughs> <laughs> Ignorance is bliss. <laughs> And, and helpfully so, I think, because yeah. you're right. There's a lot of security, whether it's imagined or real, when you're working for someone else. And um, that's all I really knew of a career. My parents were teachers. That's actually why I did an accounting degree, because I wanted, I sort of knew I wanted to be in business, but I had no obvious path into it. So I thought accounting would, would provide that, um, that branch. But how was it? Well, the, the climate that I left in the corporate sector was so sort of, um, <laughs> I was so over it. I was so disillusioned with that, that it kind of made sense for me. And I was very excited about this new field. So a bit of a leap of faith. Um, yeah, 18 months prior to that, I probably wouldn't have ever imagined being a consultant. The other life change that I was going to mention is I also happened to go to a health retreat. And we can talk about that in the context of habits if you're interested. Mm, but yeah. that health retreat, which I know is a privileged thing to be able to experience, but my God, it was life-changing because it helped me reflect on my patterns, what I was looking for in life. And, you know, all of these little seeds were planted. I happened to pick up the four-hour work week in the, um, in the airport on the way to, on, on the, way to the um, health retreat. And that although I knew I would never only work four hours, it, it started to pick apart at all of these assumptions I'd made around what it takes to live in the world and have a, you know, a career. Mm. And, um, yeah, so a few little strands started to, to feed together. So, so did you redefine what success meant at that moment? Did I redefine what success meant? Or what you I were chasing I at least? Yeah, I think... Perhaps it was more, yeah, it would have been probably more the latter of I I certainly felt quite palpably, palpably, that there wasn't a fit between what I was experiencing out of, out of my life in the work that I was doing and what I imagined I could see for myself. Mm -hmm. And, of course, when you go to a health retreat, you can have these sorts of epiphanies because it's like, oh, I've, I feel like I've never felt before. This is how I should feel every day. Yeah. And um, yeah, that sort of got the got the thought process started. And so then, what's that transition like? So then you go back. I'm changing my life. You, you quit your job. Yeah. How does that transition work? No, it was fairly um, slow and incremental. What is interesting, I think, is whenever people view someone else's trajectory. You know, mm -hmm. someone's left the corporate sector and and entered the world. I, I get a lot of comments, for instance, of Oh, wow, that's so risky or that's such a big move but I think when you're experiencing it it happens quite incrementally yeah. because you're making these tiny little decisions you know creating possibly psychological distance whether you even know it about almost leaving the old behind and moving to the new stage mm -hmm. and so by the time you actually get there it doesn't feel like a big deal 
Yeah. The the um, biggest adjust, adjustment for me initially was working on my own in my own office, and so I wasn't used to the quiet. <laughs> I wasn't used to having all of that time to think, mm. because a lot of modern workplaces aren't geared towards that. And I think people through the pandemic are possibly experiencing that change where you can be so much more productive but you can also be prone to more distraction you can be much more productive at home so you can sort of push through a lot of lot more of the work because you haven't got the incidentals of you know what's happening over in that office and you know people uh tapping you um metaphorically on the shoulder for for this that and the other and meetings 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 so my energy levels changed and the other big thing, of course, was financial. <laughs> so, so I went from the security of the salary to um, to living on savings for a while until I built things up. And I really was undervaluing myself so significantly when I started because all I did was kind of, oh, that was my salary and then I'll divide it by the hours in the day and mm. kind of add a little bit on top and that'll do. And yeah. it doesn't do at all. Yeah. So that was a big learning exercise. Okay, what, what gave you the confidence to realise your value and actually ask for your value? That, my friend, is an ongoing process. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think, um, and I don't know if it's gendered or whether it's um, social conditioning, but I've found that one of the real challenges in my own business is putting a price on my expertise there's the old saying, um, you might have heard it, where someone goes to a mechanic and, you know, the mechanic pops the lid and they, you know, my engine's running rough and, you know, I haven't been able to fix it. So the the mechanic pops the lid and taps the engine and says, okay, that'll be, I don't yeah. know, let's call it $1,000. <laughs> and the customer's like, what? All you did was tap the engine, you know? And so the, the mechanic was pretty much, well, it's a dollar for for tapping the engine, it's nine hundred and ninety nine dollars for knowing where to tap the yeah, engine. Yeah, it's, it's that sort of, and I think I've inflated that greatly. It was probably a hundred dollars, but <laughs> whatever <laughs> the story. But um, I, I think that's the challenge, particularly when you're a knowledge worker like I am, where you're not manufacturing a product, being able to articulate the value of what is kind of a faith based you know, mm. promise mm. that I'm going to improve things for people, um, yeah, is is a challenge and ongoing one. And I think that that's why I have to use a, a lot of the behavioural psychology around my business to persuade people to um, to work with me. Yeah, of course. So let, let's talk about what your what your business is and, and what kind of problems you are solving. You know, obviously you do, kind of, based on your website, there's kind of this, this aspect of working with business, but also you work with individuals. And so maybe just give me an idea of kind of the typical things you're working with and maybe some strategies and stuff that work for the environment you work with. Yeah, great. Um, so the field I work in is broadly behavioural science. Yeah. On my website, if people visit that, they'll see that on my homepage, the question that I'm trying to resolve is why don't people do what you want them to? Yeah. Why don't people do what you want them to? Because in business, I think the underlying frustration of business, you know, you have those days where you feel like you've smacked your head up against a brick wall is usually because our success relies on working with and through others and we've made assumptions about how best to, best to do that. But there's a there's a gap there because obviously if we had nutted it out and knew everything it 
took to be a human to influence other humans, we'd have conversion rates of 100% and never have a bad day in the office. Yeah, if only. So, so something's going wrong there. Um, and from a personal perspective, habits are really interesting because it's usually not a question of knowing what you need to do or what you should do. Yeah. It's getting yourself to do it. Yeah. And so why won't I do what I want to do is yeah. the sort of question that we can pose for individuals. So for businesses, and that's the core of my work, um, I do a little bit in the personal effectiveness space, but that's certainly not where most of my work is. Um, so that's really about any aspect of business. So it could be website performance. It could be writing a letter to a customer. How are you going to write that more effectively? You're having a you're presenting something to an investor. How do you, you know, pitch in an effective way? So really the behavioural psychology of how people are going to be um, persuaded to to do what you would like them to do without mm. being manipulated. Yeah. That's what I, that's the core of what I do. And, and so how do you do that? Like I know, it's a, you know, we could talk for hours about this, but but like maybe just give me some, like, because it's, you know, on the business side, that's it, um, all the business owners right now are going, oh, what's the answer to that question? Because, you know, that is the million dollar question. But then on the individual side, because I always think of, I always think of what's the cost. So like if we look at for a business who is poorly performing when maybe they shouldn't be, well, what's the cost of that? So we can look at the financial costs, but then we can look at the stress on the owner. We can look at the stress it creates within the culture and all the rest of it. And then there's the individual person. If we go to the individual person of the, you know, as you said, most people know what they should do. It's not a lack of education. It's a lack of the ability to be able to apply. But then we kind of go, I always love the cost-cost analogy, that cost analogy of well, what's the first cost? So, well, the first cost is you probably emotionally beat yourself up and you feel bad about yourself. And then there's, like, I always thought around fitness. So what's the cost of not exercising? Well, you feel bad about yourself, you know, and all the rest of it. But what's the cost five years from now? And it's like, well, you know, there's real bad health costs. So when we start to think about those types of things, what actually helps people shift and what like, corporations and people? Yes. As you said, we could talk about it for hours. Yeah. So the model that I've developed is um, is a behaviour change framework, very um, originally called the Williams Behaviour Change Framework because that's my surname. Has <laughs> um, it shifted? What is it now? It's brilliant. Brilliant. <laughs> so pretty much I break it down as everything we do every day, particularly in business, but of course in our personal life, is about getting people from point A, what they're currently doing, to point B, what we want them to do. So that can be something simple like getting them to click a button or it might be switching their bank account or it might be um, investing more in their superannuation. So everything in business or, you know, getting another team within a workplace to contribute to your priority. So giving, getting them to fill out their timesheets because you, you've got to do the payroll. Mm. So all of our day in business is really um, spent trying to, again, work with and through others and getting them from their stasis to the change state. Now, that's not always easy and um, plenty of reasons for that. So what your listeners can cling on to is there are three, only three reasons that people don't do what you would like them to. Here we go. Here we go. Here we go. Here the we first go. is that they are lazy. Okay. Yep. Now, when I say lazy, I don't actually mean literally lazy. I mean cognitively lazy. We think much less than we think we think. Yeah, and it takes so effort to, to do change things, doesn't it? 
Sorry, that? Well, it takes effort to do changing behaviours. So so that you, what you're saying is it's just easy to stay. It's like when you get a software update and you know it makes it better for you to use the software update, but you just can't be bothered doing the, the half an hour of learning to get the software update. Exactly. Yeah. So where the path of least resistance, mm. the, the example I often use in my workshops is there's a pedestrian crossing near my shopping centre and it, it sort of bridges the um, the road between two supermarkets and it's positioned in a very safe place because that's where a pedestrian crossing should be, mm. but no one uses it mm. because it takes them out of their way. Meanwhile, people on, you know, you know, those uh, wheelers, wheel or walker yep. thing, you know, older people are running the gauntlet, or I should say walking the gauntlet <laughs> between these cars because it's the path of least resistance. Yeah. And so the big challenge often is that we think people are going to think as much about an issue as we do. Yeah, okay. So, you know, if I can just explain the benefits of this superannuation policy, of course, why wouldn't they? And yeah. If I can just talk about our interest rate, why wouldn't people jump onto switching banks? And yet, you know, the fact that you've got to unravel all of your direct debits, well, that's a big reason why I'm not going to change my bank because it's too hard. So lazy. So we've got to always think of people as having an apathetic state. And so our challenge is always, and ourselves as well, if we're talking about personal behaviour. So the, the opportunity there is to... Uh, play with an equation I call the effort versus reward equation. So you've already talked a bit about effort. So try and reduce unhelpful effort, so reducing friction, and maximising reward. So why should people bother? So that's the first barrier is laziness. So we've got to get around people's inherent laziness. And and so what you're saying there is with laziness, our job is to reduce as many of the hurdles that are in front of the laziness and then to make the rewards so appealing that they'll, they'll actually want to move towards the change. Perfect, okay. yes, because that's when people will be bothered to engage in what you're suggesting they do. Yeah, okay. So that's, that's the first issue. So now let's assume that they're interested. So, you know, we've dealt with their effort, we've, we've given them enough reward to get excited. Uh, another barrier that we may encounter is overwhelm. So people might get overwhelmed by the options for how they might change. And so businesses often send, for instance, an EDM, so electronic um, sort of mail out or could be a a literal mail out, and they put all of these calls to action or they ask people to do multiple things or they give them multiple product offers and all that sort of thing, thinking that that's what people will want. Mm. You know, if if I only have all of these opportunities to choose the best gym membership, I'm definitely going to choose a gym membership when in actual fact we can get easily overwhelmed by that. Now, an example of that is um, if you've ever gone to a car park and the car park is empty, it can actually take you longer to park your car because now you've got decisions. Do I park here? Do I park there? Do I, you know? Yeah. And this is the paradox of choice that we're talking about. So more choice isn't always a good thing. Mm. It's, it's almost like when you go to that good... restaurant that's got, I remember being in Amsterdam and there was a, there was a burger restaurant and they had so many burgers and they, you could make your own burger and I, was, I just want a burger. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> you, know, it was, you know, it was just so confusing. 
Oh, some of those yeah menus that are sort of uh, I don't know what size A A three or double that, and it's like hang on, the table's not big enough to put yeah. the menu down. So that's a really good example because the smarter restaurants do a lot of um, work to cluster their choices, mm. and so they. And I've done some work on menu design, actually. So there's sort of a ratio that you can work with in terms of how you categorise different options and things. But the broader message is, and particularly if people say, oh, I definitely want your product if only you had an option that had X, Y, Z, and then you go and build X, Y, Z, and they're still not buying your product. Yeah. It's because often people ask for things that they don't necessarily, that, that actually doesn't mean their choice is going to be in that direction so we've got to be careful to, about that so we're laziness our strategy is to engage people through minimizing effort and maximizing reward with choice we've got to seek to clarify their choices and so how do we you know, it's called choice architecture but how do you put the choices forward for people for instance on your website if you have one option, is that better than three options? Is it better than five options? Is it better than seven? Well, there's different behavioral science that can that can help you make that decision. Mm. So that's the second barrier is overwhelm. Yeah. And, and so basically you're saying barrier. with on top of that one, what we're looking for is to make real clarity around the choices. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. And thank you for clarifying, Bevan, because I don't want to overwhelm people <laughs> <laughs> and make place. <laughs> We're a good team. <laughs> so the third and final barrier when we're trying to get people from what they're currently doing to what we want them to do is that they're likely to be scared. So they're probably worried about proceeding. I remember um, before I had developed a gym, um, going to the gym habit, I was intimidated by going to gymnasiums yeah. because I wasn't familiar with it and it looked all everyone looked like they knew what they were doing. Mm. And so one of the big barriers there was I had a fear of gyms, even though it was exactly what I needed to probably do. And once I got in there, I loved it. But these are the sorts of things as business people, we have to um, identify that while people not, might not be saying, I'm nervous about pressing the button that you have on your website because I don't know where it goes, or I'm nervous about um, changing banks or changing accountants because then I've got to have an awkward conversation with my existing accountant yeah. or dentist or, or fitness instructor, yeah. um, there, there is going to be possibly a level of anxiety about that. So two strategies when it comes to anticipating people are going to be concerned is the first is giving people nothing to fear. So that means if you do this, you'll be okay. So money-back guarantees are an example of that, any sort of assurances. So if you do this, it's all going to be okay. I think, I think, I think it's, like, it's interesting. I've got a running business, and we, and, and we train all different types of levels. But we've, we've got a product which is a total beginner product. It's called Get Up to Five, and it, we're really successful. So, And we've used a lot of this kind of behavior stuff behind the scenes to make them successful. So like we, uh, we get, think 45-year-old lady, has an exercise her adult life, overweight, very vulnerable, you know, scared of exercise in any way, and you add running to it. So, but we have a ninety percent success rate. We, we're really proud of the work we do. Um, but that thing of uh, that fear is the biggest comment we get. So people will look at our product for two years before they will join our product, and we and we do a lot of nurturing and we do the guarantees and stuff like. That. But are there other strategies that help reduce fear than just that guarantee thing. 
Well, sometimes people, I imagine in, in the industry that you're in, there might be fears around um, shame or yeah. sort of judgment. Yeah, big time. And so I think normalising, and you probably are doing this, but normalising who does do your courses and um, they all come in all sorts of shapes and sizes and all that sort of thing is going to be central to that message because um, if they're all sort of Instagram fitness models that are being profiled by a gymnasium, then that's very intimidating and, uh, you know, yeah. will put a lot of people off. So so any strategy that you can think of to give people nothing to fear, so we've talked about um, social acceptance, so that's what we're talking about here with um, looking like they're my tribe, you know, my tribe is a mixed bag, but also that um, I... I'm going to be accepted for the decision to do this. In other words, is my family supportive of me doing this or am I, do I have a track record of try, trying things and failing and feeling like I've got egg on my face? Yeah, okay. So yeah. that might be more in the conversations that you're having early on with a prospect mm. in your field. But So any anything you can do to make people feel nurtured, which is a good word that you used, um, is going to help in that way. And the second strategy you can use when it comes to fear, and this will sound perverse, <laughs> is you can give something, give them something to fear that is worse. Okay. Yep. So if you don't change, it's so going it's kind to be of worse. Toward away thing, so using the away thing to actually motivate them. Okay. That's right, and I think in health culture, possibly that hmm, that does get used quite a lot, doesn't it? Because it's yeah. the whole. If you don't exercise, you're going to be more susceptible to the disease and all those yeah. sorts of things. Now, the challenge with those strategies, as just a little aside, is that not only are people lazy when they're thinking about their, their world, but um, we have a version of ourselves that is our now me, and then we have a version of ourselves which is a future version of ourselves, future me. Yeah. And so oftentimes when we're talking about the benefits of a product, and you're in the fitness industry, so that's very much a future state. Yeah. In terms of, um, you know, take your vitamins and you're going to have a health outcome, you know, X months away or start mm -hmm. this regime. So that's one of the challenges because now me is the instant gratification machine. Now me wants not to feel embarrassed, not to feel maybe sweaty, not to, not to feel muscle pain. Yeah for the promise of this future goal. So a lot of the challenge, I think, and that's why things like 28-day challenges or 90-day challenges are helpful because they they give people a short enough time period to get them on track. And, and do you find but, with, um, oh, sorry, do you, do you find with, um, with the now me is more influential than the future me is kind of what you're saying? Exactly. It's okay. called short-term bias or present present bias. So... We're just governed that way. It's all very, from an evolutionary perspective, you know, we're going to, if we find a plant to eat or an animal to eat, we're going to gobble it down because who knows what tomorrow will bring. And so the challenge is very much, um, particularly around health behaviours, a lot of the, the advertising tends to be future-focused mm. for, for the benefit of this person that is a bit of a stranger. The research that we've been done, even in terms of advertising, people tend to have a very fuzzy expectation of themselves down the track and even see things in black and white. So if we're asked to imagine ourselves five years from now, that is very, very fuzzy compared to the very concrete 
version of ourselves now. So right now I'm tired. Right now I want to grab some chocolate so that I get my energy. Mm. Right now I want to have my smoke because future me can worry about these issues because future me is like a stranger. I don't even know that person. <laughs> future me, and this is superannuation, you know, why it's important to have compulsory superannuation. I'm not sure what it is in New yeah, no, Zealand. Well, it's, in New Zealand, they have, they have that choice architecture, so they use that nudge model. So it's not compulsory, but you're you're signed in when you start working, and so you have to opt out. It's the opt-out method. Okay, yeah. cool. So it's defaulted. In Australia, it's compulsory, and that's important because we have pressing issues now, and our, and as is, has been proven, and that's why superannuation was brought in in Australia, is we don't save for our future. And so all of our behaviours, not only financial but health-related, we always push the bad stuff off to our future selves mm. and, um, you know, and gratify the needs of now. Now, during the pandemic, in Australia, for instance, there's been a, a process where people could unlock their superannuation um, at an early age yep. so that it gets them over the financial bump, which I totally understand when people are um, struggling, there is a lot, much longer term problem with that. Yeah, of course. Because we're robbing, we're, we're robbing our future yeah. um, from that behavior. Yeah. So back to, so the second strategy when we're come, overcoming fear, apart from giving people nothing to fear, is to give them something to fear about not changing. Yeah. So if you're not changing your bank, what's the downside of sticking with your existing bank? So, for instance, are you burning through fees? So is your current bank doing all of that? So if I was trying to overcome someone's inertia around banking through fear, it would be two-pronged. For instance, it would be nothing to fear, so we'll take care of all the changing your direct debits. And something to fear would be, you know, you're wasting money on fees with your existing bank. And so that's two prongs to try and get people's momentum to change. Yeah. It's interesting, actually, as you talk about that idea of um, talking to the now, not to the future. As, as with beginner exercises, so the research shows with beginner exercises, you just talk about how they're going to feel today. So, like, and yes. when we when we're coaching those beginner runners, I, I I never do the oh by you doing this you're going to be here. It's but at the end of today's run you're going to feel on top of the world. You know, like it is that it is just rewarding that that now version of them, isn't it? Very much, and I think that there's so much strength in that because you're getting that endorphin rush, you're getting all of the um, the good good vibes, you're getting positive reinforcement from the people that you're training with. Mm. So there is a lot to love um, through that exercise experience in the moment. Mm. That's good mm. once they've sort of started. It's very hard to get them started to in start, the first yeah, place. To have that experience. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I think that's a that's a terrific strategy, Bevan, because I think. The more we can, uh, in, in any business, we have to bring some some benefit to now. We were talking in the laziness um, discussion around effort and reward. Mm. It's no good that the reward is, you know, six months from now or five years from now. That's yeah. just not going to swing it. So we need to make sure that those benefits are experienced now. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So, so then, so your model was, um, again, it was laziness. It was... Yes. Making it um, overwhelming. sorry, not overwhelming. Overwhelming. And, yeah, yep. overwhelming. And what was the third word again? It was scared. Scared. Okay. Scared. Okay. So I, I described it in that um, in that sequence because it, the model is a triangle. You, I can send you a link and put it in the show notes, perhaps. But um, 
I always think lazy, scared and overwhelmed. Yeah. Just think of people as lazy, scared and overwhelmed. And, yeah. and that can be your mantra. <laughs> and it means that everything you do, whether you're sitting down to write an email or you're um, about to make a phone call or you're, um, you know, you're coaching a client, think of lazy, scared and overwhelmed. If I'm getting a resistance, is it in any of those three buckets or all of those three buckets? And, mm. and what do I need to do in order to reduce each or all of them? So a question I have for you then, so that's kind of very much as, as a business, try, or, or at least trying to help other people with their problems. There can be a business, that can be just helping a friend, you know, it's, you know, you don't have to be a business to apply with what you've talked about. But then if we start to think on the personal level, um, you know, because there's, like, there's a lot of people in this world who just aren't doing the thing they know what they want to do. And if we go back to the cost, there's obvious costs and all the rest of it. Does that model work well with the individual or is there something that more aligned to, if I'm just trying to work on myself and changing behaviours that work against me, is there a different model or what do you, what would you say? Well, funnily enough, when I am teaching people in business about this model and, you know, they're fo focusing on their customer and what have you, the end exercise um, that I get them to do is do the same model on themselves because in order for them to move from their current behavior, which is not using this behavior change framework to the desired behavior, which is using the behavior change framework or, or I should say behavioral science more generally, they need to identify that they are lazy, scared and overwhelmed. Mm. And so that's often why when we have people go through training processes in business, you know, the training's great and then nothing happens yeah. when they get back to the workplace yeah. because we're lazy, scared and overwhelmed. Yeah. And so the exercise needs to be, if I am lazy, scared and overwhelmed, how do I make it super easy for myself to try this new behavior? How do I make sure I'm not overwhelming myself so that I'm paralyzed because Bree's just taken me through all of this information? No, 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 no. Just focus on one thing that resonated and just start there. Mm. And how do I make sure I'm not feeling anxious about trying this? Because if I try this and it doesn't go well am I going to be embarrassed am I going to feel like I've wasted um, effort so that's in, certainly in a work context in a personal context absolutely if you're having struggling to achieve a um, behavior change goal so I want to exercise for instance so a is I'm not running B is I want to run you can work through these three barriers to go what is stopping me from doing this is it because the reward isn't greater than the effort so that's a laziness problem and how can I reduce frictions so that it's so if I have my um, training gear right next to my bed and I can roll out of bed and get straight into the gym equipment like my um, runners and whatever mm. you know that's reducing my friction so I'm going to be more likely to do it mm. how do I set myself up for success overwhelmed you know how do I again how do I keep it simple for myself and not give myself so many options well I could go to the gym or I could um, go for this running group or I could go for a, a cycle variety can be good but you've just got to be aware of um, where you're burning up so much fuel making the decision about which to do yeah. that you're exhausted before you actually do it so yeah. designated you know Tuesdays I'm going to go for a run Wednesdays I'm going to go for a cycle and sort of kind of um, structure it that way. And then fear. So what am I nervous about? If I am I am I worried that I'm going to um, embarrass myself? Am I worried I'm going to hurt myself? And then so if that's a if that's a problem, then how can I, find, for instance, find a fitness instructor that is going to teach me how to run 
properly mm. so that my knees don't stuff me, yeah, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So, yeah, you can use, use the same framework for sure. It's interesting as well, and I think maybe one thing to add on top of that is that, like, it's interesting, I'm currently writing a new book right now, and the idea of it's... Um, you'll love exercise a year from now. And it's very much this kind of journey through a year, which guides somebody who's not doing anything to actually having a passion for exercise in a year. Um, but I also have this other idea, which I'll never do. And it's the whole idea of a diet that's really about behavior. And because I think, the, the, you know, when you think about diet, if you're trying to lose weight, you know, and you think about your term of laziness, you know, and that whole thing of the, the effort it takes to make a change in decision. Well, with a diet, there's like a hundred times a day you've got to face that, you know. And you know, and so if you're someone who's overweight and's got really bad habits around eating, you've you've probably got 30, 40 touch points in your day where you're going to have to fight change. And so I think one thing to add on top of this is that it's really important. Like, and so my 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 just kind of in my head thinking around a diet strategy would be literally you just pick on one moment in a day. And so it would be a longer-term approach, but you might just pick one meal in your day and you're just going to focus on two or three behaviours within that meal. And you'll sit on that for like three weeks and you'll kind of get better at that and then you'll expand it out moving forward. And I think maybe what you're talking about here, the strategy that you've introduced to us today, is a lot of people, when they want to change, they try to change everything. You know, and I remember my dad was an alcoholic and I remember when he gave up alcoholism and he was like an alky, a smoker, he was, you know, had all the bad habits. And, they, and I remember when he gave up alcoholism, they said, don't, you know, you don't give up smoking, you know, and it's that kind of, you've got to pick your battles, don't you? I think that's so true because you're exactly right. When people feel this flush of motivation, yeah. they, the study I often talk about is um, a study of uh, victims of heart attack. And okay. so these people have the world's biggest wake-up call to change their behaviours, change their life. And then six months later, something like a third were back to, um, you know, bad blood pressure, 10% was still smoking, whatever it happened to be. Now, what's going on here is that motivation, and this is the work of BJ Fogg from Stanford University, but he talks about motivation being like a wave. So it ebbs and flows, it's mm -hmm. up and down. So oftentimes when um, people are feeling a heightened sense of motivation, that's when they think, okay, I'm going to absolutely destroy everything in my life. I'm going to raise it to the ground and I'm going to start all over. When it's much more sensible, as you've described, to pick, pick you know, one thing to focus on mm -hmm. and build around that. It could be become a keystone habit. Mm -hmm. So, um, And they often talk about drinking water as that can be, for some people so just try and take the pressure off and just start one thing exercise can be helpful actually because that usually um when you're feeling when you're exercising that can often change other health behaviors as well mm. but it can also trap people you know i'm exercising so i'm going to binge because i can yeah, i can eat more chocolate because yeah. i've got exercise <laughs> so yeah. um Keeping it simple for yourself is so vital because otherwise, yeah, people do get completely overwhelmed and, and they feel like they've failed. Well, that's when the thing, it's really isn't it? Just, yeah. It's, 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 you self-identify so that you're a failure, exactly. don't you? Yeah. It has to be simple. Yeah. And small. And the other thing yeah. that's really important with that is because it's interesting, I, I love watching the junior way runners um, because they, they don't join us because they think, they, they earn, the main reason they join us is because they see we've been successful with people like them. Um, and so that's that our credibility is really strong. Um, but what's really interesting is watching their belief. Because the thing I like about what we do it is it's like an eight weeks transformational experience. You know, like I do a bit of public speaking. I like public speaking, but 
how much do you really help people change? You know, you can often just give them a bit of a spark, but but whereas with, with, with what we do, we kind of take them through this journey. Um, and the thing about it is that if you can have success in one little area, and like one of the greatest, we kind of get three pieces of feedback I'm really proud of. First, of, it's your first fitness product we've ever completed, which I'm really proud of. Um, but secondly, the, the second one is, I'm a better person in other areas of my life because I'm doing this. And it's that thing of, because I'm changing a behavior in an area that I didn't think possible, that kind of momentum in other areas starts to shift, doesn't it? So true, Bevan, and I'm glad you've experienced that and people that you're working with are experiencing it because I think it really can change people's um, self-conception. Yeah, oh, and that's key, isn't it? Yeah, so key. In fact, identity plays a big role. So, um, for instance, there's been some research saying that I am a runner is better than I am running. I'm going for a run. So I am a runner as the noun sort of becomes part and parcel of your identity. Mm. And so people are more likely to to um, follow that behaviour. So I I follow a plant-based diet. So I um, sometimes, <laughs> you always get in trouble saying this, but I'm a vegan. <laughs> and so just having that designation yeah. to myself eliminates a lot of the other decisions. And it, there's a whole lot of freedom that can come from using an identity as a marker to yourself but also to others, but mainly to yourself. It's like this is who I am, you know, I'm a runner. Mm. Well, that means you run, of course, because yeah. you're a runner. Yeah. And to not run means that you're almost um, you're giving yourself dissonance over your behaviours and your identity. And yeah. because we don't like dissonance, it means that you're going to be probably be more likely to um, to keep running. Now, is there a way that you can, you know, like because that's such an important thing. That, you know, and, and it's interesting you talk about this, and I've talked about this a lot on my show over the years, is that I know when I've helped someone become a lover of exercise because they come to me and they say, I see other runners and I think I'm one of them. You know, and that's that, that moment, isn't it? It's that I'm identifying that I'm this person. And these people, when they join, they're worried that people are going to see them running because they're embarrassed about being seen as a runner you know so there's this shift in this identity where suddenly i, I am the person who does this thing so you plant-based diet or vegan uh, these people are runners and i'm sure lots of listeners will see that experience in their life is there things that we can do other than just kind of doing the behavior that builds the evidence that can also encourage that kind of cementing of the identity well i think um sort of being loud and proud about it i mean i, I was listening to one of your podcasts and how you're a musician and so that's sort of part of the identity that you're seeming to step into now and so it's almost a a rebrand rather than you know the fitness guy you're a musician and that's that has a whole lot of different connotations around it doesn't it and a whole lot of different associations so I think um, claiming it for yourself about an identity that you want to have and then I think the other secret is really um, where you can, hanging out with people that are like-minded because if you put yourself in a social circumstance where people are already adopting the behaviour that you want to adopt, it's so much easier. Yeah. The hardest thing is when you're trying to change your behaviour and you've got family members or friends who are kind of undermining you, maybe not explicitly, but, oh, you know, I'm going to go for a run. Oh, no, you know, join us for a wine after work. And, you know, it's that sort of stuff. Now, usually it's because they're uncomfortable about you Changing. doing something that yeah. they probably want to do, yeah. So there's a bit of that going on. So be careful about the social environment in which you are, are operating. So, again, setting yourself up for success not only in your physical environment, so making it very easy for you to 
eat better by having the right food in the house in the first place. And I did a cooking course a little while ago and it was habit-based cooking. And the first week, the only thing I had to do was put the chopping board out. Uh, really? Because as soon as the chopping board is out on the bench, you are more likely to chop vegetables. It's yeah. amazing. Yeah, yeah. So the physical environment and then the social environment. So who's around me and are they um, supporting this new identity that I really want to step into? Mm. A question for you that's kind of a little bit different, but what about the person who is falling away? You know, because, you know, you, you get people who have actually got maybe a good place, good identity, got good routines, and then they're just losing themselves. And they are just kind of, you know, that, that thing of they wake up six months later and they don't know who they are. You know, what what would be your advice? You know, because I imagine right now, because it is a kind of a, a, a forced time of change in a lot of people's life with what's happening with COVID. And they're not in their natural routines. And, you know, just what would be your advice for that person in that situation? Yeah, that's a really good point because I think that's usually when motivation has kind of been snuffed out. Yeah. So when people – and look, some people can feel whether it's very low or clinically depressed and that can really, they can lose their, their sense of self for sure. Um, aside from seeking professional help as, as people would deem um, appropriate, I think keeping it – we've come back to this theme again, but keeping it as simple as possible. So if I used to be a runner and I've lost myself and I'm not really doing that anymore, it can, you can feel a lot of pressure to be a runner if you've sort of lapsed that habit. I've gone through um, periods where I've been a swimmer and then I haven't gone to the pool for a long time and, and sort of it, it goes in sort of patterns, I suppose. So then what I do is resume the behaviour in a very small way but and not tend to measure myself against the old behaviour but almost just start again and yeah. say, you know what, I used to love swimming or I used to love running and so I'm just going to start on a pathway that I might get there again or I might not. So don't put too many expectations on yourself. So when people are feeling very flat, small things like walking around their um, – around their neighbourhood if they can. We're, we're somewhat limited in that way. But doing some sort of form of movement, and that might be an online program, it might be um, some yoga. But key to that, I think, is whatever you enjoy. So um, the way I actually started going to the gym was I did a Zumba class okay, because nice. that was my entree into this very intimidating environment because Zumba's not that intimidating. You know, it's yeah. people... Apart from the choreography, <laughs> it's, um, <laughs> it seemed friendly enough, and um, and so look out for things that you just want to do because it's enjoyable. So it might be walking, might be walking slowly, but it might be walking in on a nature trail that because you enjoy nature. And so trying to align uh, align something that you're going to find enjoyment out of, particularly if you've sort of lost yourself mm. and building it back up that way. Mm. So just get back on the path, but at a level that's that's right right now. I think so. And key is, yeah, what am I going to enjoy? So rather than I'm going to go and slog myself, to yeah. just what am I going to enjoy? And that, that lowering of expectations. COVID. Yeah, lower, lower expectations for sure. So, so you work with a lot of people trying to help them change, and I'm sure you know you have different levels of success because you know not everyone will apply. But when when you do have people who do change. 
Are there common threads you see in, you know, because you'll give strategies, but there's also more on top of that. Are there common things that you see that those who change and actually have long-term change, are there, are there things that about them that are kind of are consistent? Well, I think um, the most important thing is there is a sense of ownership or, um, yeah, uh, you know, agency around yeah. the change. So rather than, for instance, using um, an external party like me or you as a, sort of a, a crutch when people are trying to change, when sort of the, the switch is flicked and people really are taking on their own journey for their own reasons, yeah. that's the secret. Now, all we can do is, as someone supporting change is sort of set up um, accountability if that's something that they need. So if they need someone to bounce off or keep tabs on them, and some people do, some people don't. So that can be useful. Um, and coaching them, for instance, on how strategies to make things easy. So we talked about the physical and the um, social environment as two examples of that. And, yeah, keeping it simple. So I think the people with the longest-term change, if I think about the ones that have had most success, it's it's been one thing to start with and it's been um, a small thing and that is like a little acorn that tends to grow and tends to sort of stimulate more um, broader change in their life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really interesting. I think one thing also as well is to, to learning. Uh, well, I, I have a lady who I work with and she, um, you know, t- teaching her to learn to love effort was a really important part of her journey. Um, and and now she loves effort. She's progress, her progress has been absolutely phenomenal. But just that that, that moment of, Actually, every time you put effort in, you love it after the fact. And so, you know, it's like it's like I have this morning process I do and I get up and I kind of I put a song on that gets me emotionally charged and I read this thing that's just about me feeling. And every time I do that, my day is better because I do it. And so that little bit of effort is if it's never really let me down if you know what I mean <laughs> and so for people to understand that effort is a part of the journey but actually when you put effort in you never really regret it I think what's interesting there um, that's a great example is sort of the self-reflection as well because often when you are working with someone external um, a coach for instance they they can be very good or we can be very good at pointing out hey look how far you've come yeah. and you know and also catching the self-limiting talk, mm. you know, people tend to be dismissive of, you know, the progress they've made or they tend to um, yes, but. Yeah, get down on <laughs> Yes, but, you know, yeah, you know, it's your yeah, response, yeah. Right. yeah. Right. So um, for people to, if they want to develop a practice around self-reflection now, for some people it's meditation, for some it's journaling or some people it might be, um, having a phone call with a, a friend who wants to keep them accountable, but almost changing the internal narrative, I think, is really important because people, we all tell stories about ourselves to ourselves. Yeah. You know, I'm this sort of person and this is what I do. And, you know, that's deeply wired through our socialization as kids and, you know, as we grow into adulthood. And so to start to interrupt those, um, those assumptions and statements is is really an important thing, I think, as part of part of people's journey. I mean, you see people, don't you, running their first marathon because they never thought that they could. Yeah. Um, and you would have coached people, a lot of people, through that, I'm sure. What's interesting is always after the marathon, because often if people are too focused on 
that end game, that um, doing that one thing, you know, that could be the last time they ever run. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe is point. Yeah. So, so it's, um, yeah, so a few strands there, I suppose, but, yeah, lots to consider. Self-reflection becomes really important. Yeah, I'm a believer in self-reflection. Um, just, just, I'm just about to wrap it up, but first, I always love to ask people like you and like me who kind of are in this world where we help other people, just kind of where's the struggle for you and what do you work on to make sure you stay at a level that you're happy with? Yeah, thank you for the question, Bevan. And that's um, why part of the part of the adventure in my life has been health retreats because that every time has changed a little bit about how I view myself and, and what I expect and things. Struggle for me, so in other words, I've changed a lot of habits. So I've changed diet from, um, you know, to, to plant-based. I've stopped drinking coffee. I've, um, I exercise more than I ever have. So I've changed a lot of those fundamentals in my life. My habit that I still grapple with is, um, well, there's two. There's meditation, which I need to, that's still a practice for me. So I'm doing that um, most mornings now, which is good. But snacking, eating, quantity of food is is really my challenge. Yeah. And I, of course, I know all the science. Yeah. But I can't help my now me shoveling <laughs> food in because um, I've connected food with energy. And you know, if I'm feeling like I've got low energy, that's that's what I try and do. I feed my face, which might not always be the best thing. So <laughs> that's what I struggle with. Yeah. And when you're at your best, what works? When I'm at my best, I sort of let go a little bit more, oh, really? which is sort of the peculiar thing, isn't it? So I'm – and this goes to personality type, I suppose, but I tend to be quite ordered and um, and set high standards, and that can be good in many, many ways. Mm. Funnily enough, I've just – I don't know if you've come across them. I've got an aura ring. Oh, yeah, I have. Have, have you yeah. come across aura rings? Yeah, I know of them. Which has been – What's been interesting with me using that because it tracks your sleep and it tracks your movement throughout the day and what have you, and it gives you a readiness score for those people that haven't come across one, and Aura is spelled O-U-R-A if you're interested. But um, that gives you sort of a target for the day based on your sleep. Uh, okay. And what, how it's changed my behaviour is normally I would, if I didn't have that feedback loop, I would just... Um, go and exercise like I would normally exercise. Now what I do is I have to sometimes rein it in. I have to be more gentle with myself because my readiness isn't good. And I still struggle with believing the data as opposed to my willpower because, you know, uh, as a routine-based person, if Tuesdays are the days, yeah, yeah, Tuesdays are the days I do my high intensity, that's what I want to do when I get really bummed out if I don't yeah and so that's that's a challenge um as well actually listening to not only my body cues which I obviously haven't done very well because now I have to use a ring in order to to tell me to lighten up and and leave it you know go gently go gently yeah. And so and so fundamentally what you're saying there is that learning how to manage myself and my energy wisely allows me to make better choices in things like food. Beautifully put, Bevan. Yeah, Thank yeah, you. Okay. <laughs> yes. Well, okay, yeah, okay, great. <laughs> You've done this before. <laughs> no, well, hey, um, awesome. I, I love speaking to you because I could literally talk for hours. Um, maybe just tell people about if they want to follow you, um, where they go, you know, just give yourself the big plug. Yeah, thank you. So 
a couple of books people might be interested in. One is called Behavioural Economics for Business, if people are interested in um, in what I've talked about with the model, so lazy, scared and overwhelmed. Mm. And the other, other book that I've written is um, The How of Habits. Mm. And so what I was finding with a lot of books on habits, now I wrote it a few years ago, but um, there would be lots of, you know, what I should do and why I should do it, but not how. So mm. I wrote The How of Habits to sort of fill that gap. You can find all of those details and more about me on my website, which is breewilliams.com. And Bree is spelled B-R-I, just okay. to make it a little bit tricky. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll put a link to that in the show notes for the, um, on, my, on my podcast, guys. Uh, thanks, you, Bree, for coming on the show. I love speaking to you and uh, just keep up the good work. It's really awesome. It was been, it's been an absolute delight speaking with you, Bevan. Thank you. Righto, team to say it's my interview with Bree Williams. I've got to say, I actually have done the interview after I've done this segment of the show, so I'm not actually sure what she talked about, but I'm sure it was absolutely amazing. Now, if you do want to follow Bree, you can go to breewilliams.com and I'll put a link to that in the show notes. It's actually .com.au, so it's .com because she's based in Australia, obviously. So I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Just go to Bevan James Isles. She's also got, you can get her books, The Power of Habits and Behaviour Economics for Business as well. And they're at her website, breewilliams.com.au. So I'll put a link to that there. So um, other than that, thank you for listening to the show. Now, just if you want to support the show, there's a couple of ways you can do that. First way is to become a patron. Go to bevanjamesisles.com. Go through the podcast section, click on patron or click on support the show. Uh, the other way is to put a, a, a like a review up on a, a review website like um, iTunes or Spotify or something like that. And lastly, just tell your friends about the show. If you get some value content out of this show, make sure you tell your friends about it. Uh, yeah, I haven't actually spoken much about much else today, and normally I do, but I've got a really cool podcast I want to do next time. I had an interview on another podcast myself last week, and they asked me a question that I haven't been asked before, and I came up with an answer kind of that I that I thought was interesting. Well, not that I thought my answer was interesting. I came up for an answer. I, the question made me think about something I hadn't thought about before. And I thought, oh, wow, there's a really interesting topic to be spoke about here. So in the next episode, I'm going to go deep into that. So again, thank you for supporting the show. Spread the word about the show, and I'll see you in a couple of weeks' time. As always, keep being you.